NTU World of Wisdom. Welcome to High Impact Thesis. In this podcast, we speak with researchers from various scientific fields to talk about the motivation, goal, and potential impact of their research. We also want to give you a sense of how a PhD is carried out with an emphasis on the pH, the philosophical aspects involved in pursuing a PhD. So, Sweta, welcome to the first episode. Hi, everyone. My name is Sweta. Uh, this is my final year, hopefully, as a PhD student at NTU. I came in to work here uh, more or less in an interdisciplinary domain between pharmaceutical sciences and maybe even uh, biomedical sciences. So the core of my research is based in polymer chemistry, but the overarching, um, I would say the application would be in drug delivery and more importantly, centered around pulmonary drug delivery. I do have a model drug that I'm working with, which is targeted towards treating Parkinson's disease, but we would like to hope that this mode of delivery would be applicable to multiple drugs and hence to multiple diseases. All right, I see. So this is a broad description. So can you tell us maybe more description about what drug delivery means? Why is it a challenge in general? Uh, actually, drug delivery can be in uh, in many different ways. It literally can be the most o- old form, which is the oral and the topical one, which has been there since, I would say, age immemorial, to even mm-hmm. the more newer technologies, which is uh, transdermal, uh, through microneedles, uh, even the kind of work that I do, which is through the pulmonary delivery, which is a combination of uh, inhalation as well as uh, sort of like, you know, uh, both through inhalers as well as a nasal deposition. So there are many avenues and each of these avenues have their own challenges as well as benefits. And uh, exploring each of these avenues actually requires different approaches. And I don't think I have enough knowledge in the other domains, but I think for the kind of uh, route I'm trying to explore, which is the pulmonary one, has several, as I said, advantages and disadvantages. If you want, I can go into details for it over that. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna yeah, sure. Into that, uh, we're gonna get into details at some point. So sure. So in general, what would you say like the motivation? Why did you choose this area of research in particular? Uh, that's the funny bit. I think this work kind of chose me. So when I was doing my master's in India, I was doing in a completely different topic. I was working with uh, heavy metal toxicity and I was working with two uh, elements primarily, which was the arsenic pollution and the fluoride pollution in different areas of West Bengal and uh, more focused on the mitigation of it. So you can, uh, I can primarily say that I was working on the chemistry of it. And then when I was uh, looking through various projects at NTU, I came across this one and um, I realized that this, this area does attract me because it has a lot to do with chemistry, but in a different domain. By the time I was finishing my master's, I'd already worked with heavy metal toxicity for like three years, both as mm-hmm. my bachelor's thesis as well as my master's thesis. And I realized that okay, maybe there was not and much beyond at that point I could have done. And hence, I started to look at other domains. And this domain found me because it had to do a lot with chemistry and 
a lot more with chemistry than other people actually give it thought. And then I spoke to my professor, who was, in fact, a large motivation as to why I'm here. Uh, he explained what kind of work he does. He explained the kind of scope I have worked with to this work. And I realized that this is an area that I can definitely make an impact in if, if it amounts to something that's worth doing. And that's exactly why I'm here exploring that possibility. Mm. I see, I see. Okay, I, I want to step back just a little bit. Uh, you, you, when you started, you mentioned uh, polymer chemistry. Yes. Right, so, so can you just, just a brief, what, what does that mean? Uh, okay, so I think uh, in chemistry in general, right now we can broadly say, okay, there is physical chemistry, there's organic chemistry, and then there is inorganic chemistry. And in organic chemistry, one of the largest fields of study right now is polymer chemistry. It can be uh, from industries, which produces products that we use daily, to pharmaceuticals, where they are utilizing these specialized, synthesized uh, polymers and copolymers and block polymers mm. to create these uh, micro nanoparticles, which are usually the vehicles or vesicles or whatever form you're generating them in to as as a as as a loading material as like sort of like a how do I say as like a, a component vehicle? yeah like okay. a vehicle which allows you to carry drugs into various mm. systems and it is in one of these domains that polymers over the last few years maybe even the decade have gained so much attention that I would like to say that it's a separate field which can be called <laughs> the pharmaceutical polymer right. chemistry. I mean, because when I hear polymer, I, I, I just think of plastic. plastic. I don't know why. It's just I know, so did I. Yeah. I. I did too. I mean, when I came in, I was like, okay, there is chemistry and there is organic chemistry and there is physical chemistry. That's it. Those are the divisions and everything else belongs into their, you know, subsets. Uh -huh. And then I came in and then... Of course, we all do our literature review. Right. Yeah. And there's this vast ocean of, you know, information where people have been using these. Mm -hmm. And wow. it's so fascinating because some of these have even gone on to obtain FD approval to be used mm -hmm. and they are very successful. So people have, of course, taken this a bit further and are trying to explore if these can indeed become the future excipients for various kinds of drugs. Mm -hmm. Some of the traditional excipients, so excipients are components onto which we load the drugs to give them volume or to help ensure that their properties are not lost. Mm. And uh, and then these are administered, any form, oral, topical, right. ingested. Mm -hmm. The closest thing, at least in my experience, is the capsule tablets. Right. Is that like an early, was that an early stage of research in this area? Like, you know, the... Uh, the, the, the tablet coating? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, that the container of the that you can actually dig uh, ingest. Uh, I'm not sure if those are technically made of polymers. Mm. Because those have been around for quite a number of decades. Right. And I'm not sure if this is the one, like, if polymer were one of the components they were using. Because I'm not an expert and I cannot claim... Knowledge I mean, in you that just domain. said it's a, it's a big, it's a big, it's a, it's a big, big uh, domain. Big field, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so is this work primarily concerned about 
using certain molecules or polymers as a carriers of drugs? Yes. Or as, like, is there any possibility for targeting certain tissues within the body? Or uh, Of course. I mean, uh, it really depends on how you're administering it. Mm-hmm. Or where you're sending your microparticles. Like how these people are taking it in. In my case, they will be inhaling it through a dry powder inhaler. Mm. So the first environment they'll be meeting are the lungs. Mm. And once they're in the lungs, uh, we would think that these uh, microcarriers uh, would allow the drug to diffuse out and in sort of uh, allow them to, how, how do I say, mix or rather be absorbed uh, into the blood system where they will be carried to the mm. brain uh, across the blood-brain uh, barrier where they will have the uh, storehouses for dopamine, which is... Okay, so before I talk about dopamine, why I'm talking about dopamine, I work with a drug which is known as levodopa. Now, levodopa is the gold standard for treating a disease called Parkinson's disease. And one of the main features in Parkinson's disease is that over a long period of time, Uh, these patients start losing their uh, dopaminergic neurons Mm. or neurons which produce dopamine. As a result of which, they suffer from a multitude of symptoms. They can be a loss of control over voluntary movements to even dementia, depending upon the stage Mm. they are at. So in such a scenario, one of the main ways of treating it is to supply the body with the dopamine. And this administration ideally has been done through the ages through the oral route. Now there are certain challenges of the oral route which is why we want to bypass that system and target the pulmonary system which gives a sort of benefits over this oral route. And that is why when we administer the dopamine or levodopa, the pro-drug form of dopamine, we would Uh, assume that once it reaches the lungs, it will then be uh, dissolving into or absorbed into the circulatory system where it will be carried across uh, the blood-brain barrier, which is where it will be transformed into dopamine and Mm. stored in the uh, various Mm. storehouses that we have for the body to be using it later. So it's a precursor to do- dopamine, not... Yes, oh, okay. and usually levodopa is administered in combination with another do- drug, sorry, which is known as carbidopa. Mm. And carbidopa is a sort of like a decarboxylase inhibitor. So in our body, we have an enzyme called decarboxylase, which is notorious for breaking down levodopa within the circulatory system. Mm-hmm. So if we administer it with tandem with carbidopa, we ensure that levodopa is not broken down while it's in the systemic circulation. Now, this carbidopa cannot cross the blood-brain barrier. So when it reaches the blood-brain barrier, it is only levodopa which can cross it, which is where it gets transformed into dopamine and hence utilized. Oh, I see. We want to get like uh, into actually what you're actually like doing in the lab, like your day-to-day activities, and uh, like mainly what are the goals that you have set? Basically, your thesis, right? Uh, I'm sure you're working towards a certain target. Of course, uh, I think so. In twenty seventeen, when I came in, my supervisor gave me this a uh, blank problem statement, and he said, "I want you to work." on pulmonary drug delivery to improve it in some way 
with levodopa as your model drug so that we can improve the way Parkinson's is currently being treated. Now, there are several ways in which you can look at this problem, right? You can look at the formulation, you can look at the delivery itself, like the medium in which it is being delivered, or you can look at the disease. And that was a choice that was up to me. And I chose to look at the formulation. So my thesis, if I had to sum up in a sentence, would be on developing different kinds of formulation with mm. levodopa as my model drug to see which amongst these work the best in various scenarios. Now, the different scenarios that we need to consider is stability. Since I am delivering it through the pulmonary drug, like the pulmonary system, mm. I need to ensure that a certain quantity of the drug is indeed reaching the system. And the third thing that I need to ensure is that once reaching the system, this drug remains stable enough for it to be absorbed into the circulatory system. And the fourth thing is I need this system to be sustainable over a 24-hour period. So these are the four main targets of my work. Mm, okay. And these are all interlinked. So once the formulation stage is done, and then I explore how well these are distributing through the lungs, then I explore the stability, and for it, if it is sustained, this stability is sustained over a 24-hour period. Okay. I'm kind of interested, like, how do you actually monitor these different stages? Like, uh, you, you mentioned, like, that the, the drug reaches a certain um, place in the body, and then it moves to the next part where like there's a separation of the chemicals right so how, how do you actually are able to tell what's happening inside uh so that's actually a good question because that was something i was pondering about a lot <laughs> initially but i i think that there are enough uh in vitro studies which are available as our characterization methods that tell you whether your drug is the, whether your formulation, sorry, is the optimal formulation for your drug or not. For example, once formulated, that's the straight and simple method. Mm -hmm. And uh, I use the spray drying technique to do the formulation. And this, why I chose spray drying above other methods is because it's already there, you know. <laughs> and okay. if, if something is already there and it's been working very well in the pharmaceutical uh, like sector it's more easily adoptable. Right. People will be more open to that method. Mm. So that's why we started with the spray drying. The other thing, the other benefit to this method I found out was since I'm looking at a powdered formulation, there is very few methods that comes to uh, give as much efficiency as that of a spray dried formulation. It, it really gives you the powdery form you're looking at. Mm. The next thing you would have to look at is whether these are really the ones that you would need for pulmonary drug delivery. Because uh, for pulmonary drug delivery, especially if I'm using a dry powder inhaler, I am looking at a formulation whose microparticles need to range within a certain therapeutic limit. There's mm. between 1 to 10 micrometers. Oh. Anything less than 1 micrometer your body is just going to breathe it right out, okay? <laughs> okay. And uh, anything more than 10 micrometer, it's not going to reach your lungs very well. It's just going to get stuck at your throat. So you're looking at that ideal oh, therapeutic range. So that's one of the biggest criteria when you're 
checking uh, whether your microparticles are good enough. Mm. The second way to establish whether they are is to run various mechanical simulations or experiments, mm. I would mm. like to say. And we can do this with um, instruments such as the uh, Anderson Cascade Impactor, which mimics the human lung, a mechanical, you can, oh, it's yeah. a mechanical yeah, human yeah. lung. I just wanted to ask you about that. How would you model the environment of the lungs inside? Yeah, so uh, we do that in two ways. One, we look at it from a mechanical point of view, and the other, we look at it from a biochemical point of view. So the mechanical point of view would be the use of, as I said, the ACI or the Anderson mm. Cascade Impactor or the Next Generation Impactor, because these uh, sort of form like um, a, a, a sieving mechanism. Okay, so they have different stages with different pore sizes. And once you deploy your particles as you would breathe in through a dry powder inhaler, your particles would settle down because of gravity in form of their particle size. Right. And mm -hmm. if you recover from each stage and you analyze it back, you will know how what is the fraction of your particles which belong to each category in terms of size. And then you know whether this will work or not because you can express the percentage in form of two things. One is the fine particle fraction and the other one is the emitted dose. So greater mm. the values for these, the better is your formulation. Mm. So you know. So that's one mechanical characterization that tells you. Then the second one is biochemical, right? Yes. That, that I would imagine would be much harder to... Oh, yes. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the most troublesome one. So over here, when we did the biochemical uh, analysis, we were actually trying to establish two more targets. The one was the stability over a 24-hour period. And... Uh, the second one was to see if indeed our drug was leaching out of the polymerase onto which they were loaded, because that is one of the main concerns. Mm. Now, ideally, people use polymers because they want them to have a sustained release over a very long period. Now, mine is somewhere in between. I do not want these microparticles to last for days. Mm. I want them only for 24 That's hours, was, yeah. which is, you know, which is like trying to hit that sweet spot which right. is very impossible to achieve so that was something we had to sort of uh, re constantly reiterate our formulations a little bit to check if we are actually getting to the 24 hours uh, how we do that is we use an in vitro testing method it is called the drug dissolution study and it's a very common technique in the pharmaceutical studies and uh, here you can uh, so the medium in which you would explore also varies depending upon uh, which region you're targeting. I use something called uh, stimulated lung fluids. So stimulated lung fluids mm -hmm. are solutions, uh, artificial solutions, which mimic the environment inside your lungs. And there are two kinds of stimulated lung fluids. One is the Gamble solution, which mimics the instant interstitial lung fluid mm -hmm. and the other one is the artificial lysosomal fluid which mimics sort of the uh in sort of the internal environment of uh, something called the alveolar macrophages i see uh, very interesting because <clears throat> these are the ones who are responsible for sort of phagocytosing or i would say ingestion of foreign particles within the lungs so okay. these are sort of like res defense responses by the body 
where they take in the, the foreign particle and they try to break it down. So that's the second environment that my particles will be, mm. you know, interacting with. I see, I see. So it's very important for me to know how they are faring in just the lungs and then these macrophages. Ah, sounds like a lot of variables. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I would imagine these, these procedures, like for mimicking the biochemical environment of the lungs, are standard, right? Yeah. So these two solutions are standardized. They mm. have been used uh, in environmental studies as well, especially uh, air pollution, where a lot of the particles go into your lungs oh, okay. and the scientists want mm. to study how it's behaving and how it's acting. So this okay. is like an established uh, dissolution medium. So I'd, I'd imagine there's, there are certain advantages to, for, for one test, like the mechanical test, and there are other advantages for the biochemical. That's why... You're, use, you're using both of them? Yes. Okay. I, I use both of them. So for the mechanical one would be to ensure I'm getting the correct particle size. Mm. And the biochemical would be to ensure that I have the chemically right formula. And the biochemical one is to ensure that we're getting the chemically correct formulation. So it it, it is like a two-prong thing that you have to do. Mm. Okay. We, we haven't actually got to what you do, like physically, other than using these, using these tests, right? Like what, what happens, what actually happens when you are there in the lab? Because I know that you're there for a long time, the whole day, every day. Would you be surprised if I tell you that my dissolution study literally lasts 24 hours? That's what confuses me. Like, how can ex an experiment, like, I understand for certain, yeah, it's mainly because I don't really understand what you do, so... So when I'm I should sure make sense, right? Uh, so if okay, for example, if I'm doing my fabrication, it won't last long. It'll take me about two to three hours. Is that the the formulation? The formulation of the... part. Okay. Yes. So two to three hours from when I start prepping my reagents and my material to the collection of the material. Mm -hmm. Then once you've collected these materials, the, they need to be tested out, right? So you have to do particle characterization and that involves uh, visually seeing them, which we do with a microscope, like for example, the scanning electron microscope. Mm. And then once you know how your particles look like and you understand that these are the ones you want to move ahead with, then you start the, uh, the solid-state characterization, and you do it with the help of things like X-ray diffraction, the FDIR, which is an, which sort of tells you a little bit more about the various components and how they're behaving mm -hmm. or interacting with one another. Then the other thing that I do use is uh, called the DSC, which is a differential scanning calorimetry. It tells me how my particles are decreasing in presence of heat. It's important because uh, one of the other things you need to ensure about your formulations is since these are pharmaceuticals, they need to have a decent amount of shelf life. Mm. They can't oh, just yeah. degrade yeah, yeah. because of heat or, or some other factors. So you need to validate these points that they survive through this, you know, basic temperature range, basic pH and those things. Uh, also, of course, one of the biggest studies I spend most of my time with is the dissolution study because it runs 24 hours. So there's one whole day where I'm awake and then there's the next day where I'm sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I have to do these in like multiple times to ensure that, you know, I have 
I can replicate the data. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it's a it's an evolving process. So what 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 what's taking place exactly during these twenty four hours? Uh, during these twenty four hours, I will be checking. So I'll be drawing samples out, once from the experimental vessel. The experimental vessel being my uh, stimulated fluids with the uh, microparticles in it. And I'll be checking for the drug concentration every hour to see how it's evolving with mm. time. Mm-hmm. And so it varies. This thing varies for other people. But for me, I chose 24 hours. So I need data from every hour to see if it's running oh, correct. So you're doing oh, every, every hour? hour every hour. Like you don't sleep for, the, yes. for 24 hours? No. Wow. <laughs> so... What if previously my supervisor had the same reaction? He was like, no, break it up, you know, do 12 hours and then do 12 hours. But I thought it it leaves a lot of room for error, mathematical Mm. error, and it does not give good results. So I rather do it at one go, see how it works, and then sleep for the next 24 hours. (laughs) Mm. But I would imagine that most of the change would happen within the first few hours. A lot of the drug, yes, a lot of the drug actually leaches out within the first six hours. And then it becomes quite steady. Mm. And this is kind of, this is something we are actually looking at because when we talk about Parkinson's, uh, these are people who have a very poor quality of life when they are in their off phases. That is when their body do not have enough dopamine. So you would need a drug that would act immediately. Okay, mm-hmm. at least give them the immediate shot just for the body to adjust itself back. And then if it slows down over a 24-hour period, it's not a bad thing. We will take that. Mm-hmm. But initially, they would need that certain hit for the body to okay. you know come back to... But why did you mention that you do not prefer, you do not want your drug to stay for more than 24 hours? Like, what what's the issue? Okay, there? so... Uh, Over here, you need to know a little bit of a background then. So right now, as I said, levodopa is the gold standard. And the most common way in which uh, levodopa is still being used is through oral delivery. Now, uh, the oral delivery, because of how... So in our stomach, we have different kinds of gastric enzymes, right? And -hmm. these gastric enzymes break down the drug very fast. So studies have estimated that about only 30% of the ingested drug reaches the blood, like actually manages to cross the blood-brain barrier and is effective. Mm -hmm. 70% is lost. As a result of which, these people have to be dosed at a higher percentage to ensure that a greater amount of drug is reaching the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that itself has several side effects. Moreover, since these drugs are being ingested, they need an hour or two before they can reach their peak therapeutic activity. Like at least the Uh peak plasma concentration will not be attained before an hour or two. So during that period, they still are not doing well, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Moreover, the other problem is as the disease progresses, one of the main symptoms that arises due to loss of voluntary control is you, your ability to swallow. Um, so you cannot swallow very well. So if I'm looking at a patient who is in an advanced stage, probably requires more than two or three tablets a day to uh, treat his symptoms, 
he would need to swallow these tablets and he has mm. a swallowing disorder so it's it's difficult physically and after a while i'm sure it has a psychological thing coming yeah. in where he would be like no yeah. it's okay i i don't want to do this and they would skip their dosage mm-hmm. so because of these factors we thought that the pulmonary drug deal will be a little bit easier because with dry powder inhaler you just have to push a button and it's in like like we do in the uh, the asthma drug mm. right and it has been proven that pulmonary drug delivery allows the therapeutic uh, plasma concentration to peak within 30 minutes oh that's, that's so that's really fast, fast. Yeah. that's mm. really fast so that's one of the reasons why we went for uh, the pulmonary drug delivery mm. but now why 24 hours the main thing is since it peaks so fast it we know for a fact it cannot remain sustained over tw- more than 24 hours uh-huh. because most of the drug will be released within that time period uh-huh. okay so to ensure that it is delayed further is counterproductive to our first target which is to ensure that they have a quick hit when they need it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's why we're not looking at a sustained drug delivery for more than 24 hours so for 24 hours they don't need to take four pills a day they can just take one uh inhaled you know one inhalation or one puff but beyond 24 hours we are countering the immediate need within the first 30 minutes that this method is providing. Mm-hmm. So, I'd like to go move to another point which is about what are the like biggest challenges or uh, barriers to pushing the development further in this area? Uh I think it's firstly like Parkinson's although it affects many people, it's still a very niche uh I would say a very niche disease, right? In mm. Singapore, I think it's just 3 in 1000 every 1000 people oh. above the age of 50. And mm. it, this was a survey that was conducted by Ministry of Health, I think, and it came out in one of their guidelines in mm. 2004 or 2007. Okay? And there they said like only 3% above the age of 50 suffer from Parkinson's disease. And since it's so niche, the amount of research that is happening is of course not as wide because it doesn't impact a large population. Yeah. Secondly, mm-hmm. we're looking at a geriatric population. They may or may not be open to a new mode of drug delivery. Mm-hmm. Right? It can also depend upon training. Like these people, they don't have control over their movements. So sometimes they would need uh assistance. in order to ensure that they're taking the drug properly or they have enough uh inspirational volume like breathing volume to be able to breathe in the entire amount of the drug mm-hmm. as required uh fourth would be uh not a lot of people are as i said it's still the oral method that a lot of people are concentrating on because it's easier i would say and hence not a lot of people are exploring this mm. but yet at the same time there are uh, studies that are going on simply because they think that this is a possibility that should not be left unexplored and because of that we do have uh, an FDA approved drug which is called CVT301 which does pulmonary drug delivery of levodopa mm-hmm. 
Mm. And is either under clinical trials, but towards the end state. So it should be in the market soon. And it's a promising sign that, oh, okay, maybe the world right. is opening up to alternative routes. That's good news. Actually. I once heard about like some people are trying to develop something similar with insulin for people they who are have. suffering. With... They have actually. They Because ha- taking shots every day are very, for, very... For diabetes. Diabetes, yeah, okay. for insulin. Mm. They definitely have for insulin. I think they even uh, used something called a polaxomer, which helped insulin. Because insulin is a hormone and it requires a, a specialized encapsulation, if I'm not wrong. And uh, they use something called polaxomers, which are hydrophilic polymers, to ensure that these two are, you know, these... Compatible? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. But it's it's very new, I think, mm. 2010-ish, I would say. Oh. I remember reading it very vaguely about it when I was researching for my work. Oh, okay. So nothing on the market yet? I have no comment <laughs> <laughs> on that. Wait, so what, what's the name of the drug? That the uh, CVT-301. Uh, CV- oh, that's for the insulin, though? No, that's oh. for levodopa. Oh, levodopa. What is levodopa? Levodopa is the levoform of dopamine. It's a precursor of okay. dopamine. Oh. And so when you're form, formalizing your, the drug, like the... the, the like the entire yeah, formulation know. of the, the form, drug. Yeah, you, you call it formulation, but what is it? Is it the, the chemical product? Like Oh, so the formulation is both the drug and the excipients. Mm-hmm. And these excipients uh, contain, should I say it? It's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it's a secret. <laughs> so the excipients contain... I'm going to broadly say it, a polymer, a carbohydrate, and two other additives, mm-hmm. which ensures the property of the drug is not hampered or degraded. Right. So actually, so yeah, my question is, was actually regarding the excipients. Like, is it possible to use this formulation the excipient in, in, for other drug delivery? That yeah. would be the ideal case. So mm-hmm. if once it works for levodopa, and we know for sure it does, we would like to apply... at least the same excipients for similar drugs which have whose properties whose chemical properties are similar to that of levodopa's mm. and then see if it works for them first or not and then maybe move on but i'm sure with i mean i have tweaked this formulation about 20 different times because i know for a fact i have 35 different excel sheets with <laughs> 35 different formulations on it yeah. so it goes under a lot of tweaking here and there depending upon what the results say mm. so there will definitely need some tweaking but the idea is to come up with at least one system that works and it can form your foundation for other systems to be engineered later on so it's kind of like once you do it once then it It's much easier to replicate the same process with other drugs. Now. Yes. Mm. I wouldn't say replicate, but to design similar. Similar. Uh, Because replicate is ambitious. So it has to be c- customized to each drug, basically. The yes. Process. The ratios in which we are using the various excipients, the conditions in which we are preparing it. Because, for example, levodopa is quite stable at 80 degrees of spray drying, which is the temperature I use. Mm-hmm. But other drugs may not be so True. stable at that temperature, mm, yeah. right? Uh, some drugs even need much, much lower temperature for them to work, uh, like for them to remain in a stabilized condition. Mm. So in such a scenario, spray drying may not even work. 
Oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I might true. even have to change the ways I'm, in which I am producing it. Right. But my experience might remain the same. All right. Uh, so we did talk a lot about your research, right? So the background, the work you do, and like where, where can this go from here? So in addition to all of that, we also wanted to touch on your personal life as a PhD student, right? You're, you're away from home in a foreign country, <laughs> but still a lovely place, Singapore, NTU. Uh, and uh, yeah, so what, what keeps you, what, what, what do you do for fun? Like, what do you do to, to, to engage with the... Outside your research. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Engage with other mm. PhD students. Actually, or, I was yeah. going to say, what have I not done? <laughs> <laughs> I think... It sounds uh, like you've done a lot then. <laughs> I, I would like to hope so, because uh-huh. I, I think that... You know, one of the main things that you need to do as a student, because I'm lucky enough to still call myself a student, is that you need to explore the surroundings around you. And you can do it with the help of people around you and the various situations you have. Mm. And one of the main things that I learned while doing a PhD is it's a simultaneously lonely journey, which can also be very fulfilling if there are other people involved. And uh, why I say simultaneous is because there are a lot of other people who are involved mm-hmm. and it's up to you how you drag them in, drag them in, in your net, yeah, right. right? You need to reach out first and, and forge these connections because you need them. Uh, you would need them professionally because you're not going to be good at all the instruments and you would need help with other people and their expertise. Mm-hmm. You would need them personally, maybe just to rant about the experiment that's not working out for the last two months. <laughs> and and you would also need them like socially because everybody loves a cool beer at the end of a very long day, right? Mm-hmm. So there are <laughs> different contexts in which you would need these people. And of course, sometimes when you're doing something constructive, that you can do on campus over here and i'm sure you can do it on other campuses as well as a phd student like engage with student body community engage with the community in general so many ways in which you can give back while you get something in return as well so i think it's it's up to you as yeah it's just who you are as a person and how much you're willing to put yourself out there and hope that you'll get back something in return Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, of course, this podcast being an NTU Wow initiative, uh, NTU Wow's main initiative is, as you know, TEDx NTU, and mm-hmm. uh, you've been involved with TEDx for how long now? For four years I think almost. I feel I'm old. I'm four years. <laughs> four years. <laughs> That's almost your whole PhD journey. Yes. The TEDx. I'm so yeah. glad I answered that random email that popped up in my <laughs> inbox. You know in October of 2017 and I uh, had this amazing chance to just come up on team. Uh, On the first year itself, I was just impressed. Like, here is a body of what, that year was about 100 volunteers. Mm. This body of 100 volunteers made an event happen, uh, which involved 1,600 people. Yes, that is the full... Yeah, I mean, I think that was... Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just when you're there and you see the evolution of the process where a nascent idea of which a speaker has and the speaker is not even sure of is curated by this amazing team with 
insights from say 10 people converging and then you know coming together so harmoniously and then on the d-day you have this speech or this talk ready and the speaker goes up on stage and does his or her best and you feel that you raise this child together right. as a village <laughs> it's an amazing feeling and i have been fortunate enough to have felt that for the last four years right <laughs> and it's very addictive <laughs> i'm jealous now <laughs> it's extremely addictive right right yeah yeah definitely it's it's a it's an amazing amazing process so yeah since i've also been involved i can yeah i think i that. met you through right TEDx we did met you right yeah, yeah through tedx and to you yeah so it's it's great but yeah, I, I did have like I, I did want to talk about like your love for cooking and your love for reading and all those Ask things. Ask Have yours for the evening. <laughs> so what what got you, for example, to reading? You you, mm. you you do seem to like to read a lot. Okay, I think I loved reading even as a child. When I was a kid, I remember my parents taking me to the book fair. We have this mm. wonderful book fair back in Calcutta that arrives every winter. And it's a paradise if you are a oh, kid yes. who loves to read. You're just <laughs> there and your mom's like, you can take whatever book you want and we're paying for it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> you will regret it's this. The nerdy kid candy store. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I think that's where I started reading. Uh, but but I think the one of the main things that helped foster this love is... Uh, I had never faced any kind of uh, censorship growing up. Mm. So I was allowed to read anything and everything. Mm. So my parents would not take away a book because it's too old for me. Uh. They'd be like, you can judge for yourself if you want to continue reading this book or not. And that was backed by my granddad, who was a professor at a college back home. And he, of course, had a huge library where he was reading books about skeletons. Oh, wow. And he had animal skeletons. <laughs> skeletons. You, he would, you know, he would be laying down the skeleton of a guinea pig on the table, open the book, and he'd be like, this is this bone, you know? This is what it's called. <laughs> and to oh, a right. seven-year-old, that's like, wow, like the epitome mm. of coolness, right? right? So, yeah, I've always been surrounded by books. Automatically really? translated into my thirst for just reading anything and everything as long as it interested me mm. but i could never finish war and peace though <laughs> war and peace. could yeah. not finish that book i tried uh-huh. <laughs> okay it, it took me i had similar experience with the hundred years of salt it took me like four tries <laughs> oh yeah that, that was book. a hard book to right. read but it's so well renowned oh, by yeah. people right yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. loves it yeah, it's a great book so yeah thank you very much for coming and uh, thank you for giving us your time and uh, thank wish you all the best Thank you so much for having me here. This was a lot of fun. You're most welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.